Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 14th, 2019. Contestant number two today, worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And oh boy, did I get a, more than a few requests for this one. So if this is the one you emailed me about, yeah, we may have a winner here. I, that's all I'm saying. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to compare what the most popular Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. And there's just a whole lot of people just letting their feelings decide what we as Christians are to believe rather than the Word of God. Case in point, uh, darling of the evangelical industrial complex, Jadon Hatmaker, will be delivering the... <clears throat> sermon that you will be considering for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, and we'll be playing that out shortly. So wanted to let you know that. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> I it's going to be tough for me to get through the sermon. It's going to be tough because Jen Hatmaker is one of these uh, people who uh, should have been playing for Team Emergent 10 years ago, and she's kind of the, uh, the, the standard evangelical quasi liberal SJW postmodern who refuses to abide by what God's word says and in the name of Jesus it defies what God and what Christ has revealed in his word that we are to believe confess and do and define how morality and immorality is uh, defined and so uh, you, I think you're going to find this sermon to be just a little bit tough to get through so <clears throat> let's uh, gird up our loins, shall we? And uh, let's get to it, but let's do this properly uh, for contestant number two for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Here we go. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's Easter sermon contestant number two, Jen Hatmaker of Austin New Church, Austin, Texas. The name of her Easter sermon is titled Wounded and Resurrected. I believe that's a quote from the Roman Catholic mystic Richard Rohr, by the way. Yeah, I, all I can say is that this thing is a hot mess from the word go. Although we got to give her props because of this fact. And that is, is that at the beginning of the sermon, she's going to make the case that Jesus 
bodily rose from the grave, that this isn't mythology, that it's real. And so she's going to take on the skeptics who would point to the different variations of the resurrection account and say this proves that it's not true. And she's going to take them on and say and show that definitively, correctly, well, that actually proves that the accounts are true. I'll let her explain that, but no sooner does she does that that the whole thing just comes flying off the rails, not like it was on there strongly to begin with because she's defying the word of God by being the person delivering the sermon from the pulpit on Easter Sunday. Yeah, I think you get the idea. Let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's Jen Hatmaker and Wounded and Resurrected. Here we go. Good morning. So happy to see you. So happy to be back in the pulpit after a busy spring. Yeah, God's word forbids you from being in the pulpit. Just saying. Um, Super excited. Lucky me. I was thrilled that my spot on the docket here fell to the Sunday after the resurrection because... I don't know, man. It's just an awesome part of scripture. Like the Bible gives us so much to chew on. It's an awesome part. I mean, there's so much to chew on. It's just chewy. Um, The days and the weeks following Jesus' resurrection, there's just tons there to learn from. I really just had to weed it out. Um, Let me say this first um, before we jump into um, what we're going to talk about this morning. Just for any people that are here this morning and you are like, you know what? I don't even know if I believe the Bible. Like, I don't even know why I'm here. Um, first of all, welcome. Glad you are. Um, I just, I would love to just address that for one quick moment. I spent a lot of time on that actually this week because interestingly, um, the accounts of what happened after Jesus's resurrection are different in all four gospels. Um, it's a different order of events. Sometimes it was the women. Sometimes it was just Mary Magdalene. Um, sometimes in one, there was one angel. Sometimes there was two. Um, only Luke gave us the road to Emmaus story, but left out some other stuff. Um, only Matthew put guards at the tomb and mentions an earthquake. So there's some stuff, right? This is, this is real. Uh, I spent a lot of time kind of across all four gospel narratives this week, and I'm just going to sum up what took me hours into two minutes. Let me just tell you this real quick. Um, while obviously critics cite this specific story um, as evidence of unreliability, I do want you to know that historians tell us something different. Now, this point that she's making is absolutely correct. And that is, she's going to point out that if there was collusion and this was a false story, everybody's narrative would have been uniform. But it's not. Everyone's giving their own eyewitness accounts, which actually proves the historicity of the account rather than collusion. It's a good point. And I'm glad she's making it, but she shouldn't be making it because she shouldn't be preaching. Uh huh. God's word forbids her from doing what she's doing. And like I said, this is the good part. The wheels are going to come off shortly. Um, First of all, the historical method across all genres, not just biblical um, history, but all all history, um, is different from the scientific method. Um, By design, it is not only concrete and factual, it's also inferential. This is standard, standard protocol, standard procedure. Closer in, biblical historians who let me tell you, are far less fragile than most evangelicals, you know, like when it comes to analysis of scripture, um, they remind us, they're like, look, every gospel writer selected only details relevant to his literary purpose, his intended audience, and frankly, his point of view. Okay. They're, they're men. Um, and so... Nice swipe at men, by the way. I, I wonder if uh, Jen Hatmaker would be one of these SJW types who, down with the white male patriarchy. I mean, after all, she's a woman, a woman preaching. Yeah, so she's down. She's against, uh, you know, biblical patriarchy for sure. It's fine. Also, they say that the differences in detail actually lend credibility 
to the account. Be now this is true. Because a conspiracy would have involved a very carefully rehearsed story, and we would expect to see identical versions, right? Yep. Um, in fact, that they say the varied post-resurrection stories pass what historians call the minor variations test, which is also used by legal experts, which says, while truthful witnesses complement each other, a judge would not expect them to describe the incidents, the same incidents, in precisely the same way. Um, so I do want you to know this morning, however you come to the Bible, that when it comes to everything that happened after the resurrection, the eyewitness details are in perfect keeping with how eyewitnesses have always described an event. Also, the reporting of the story is in perfect keeping with how reporters have always written for their individual outlets and audiences. And what really matters here is that the central story is the same across all four gospels. And so I do want you to know this morning, we can trust the resurrection story. Okay? And this is true. We can. The point that she's making is valid and true. Okay? We can press really hard on it. It'll hold. Okay, um, so I've decided that we're gonna we're gonna be in John today. We're gonna look at John's account because he had the most to tell us um, the week after the resurrection. Of course, keep in mind they are all fresh from the trauma, right? Still very, very much embedded in the "what on earth now" stage. Um, and I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this space in Scripture because I want to know more. Uh, about what it was like to be a disciple after the empty tomb, right? I mean, I can relate to this. this uh, the only kind of disciples there have been for the last 2,000 years are the kind that are after the empty tomb. I've never met a different type of disciple in my lifetime. This is the moment that all of Jesus's followers and disciples and contemporaries joined us on this side of the cross, Right? And so we get to see in very real time what it meant to wrestle with resurrection. Right? We have a lot to learn. To, to, to wrestle with resurrection. I'm wrestling with the phrase, wrestle with resurrection. What exactly does that mean? From the way that the disciples and followers reacted to Jesus. This is so incredibly relatable. So I see three key reactions that I want to talk about in John's retelling. Every single one of them relatable. Every single one of them valid. Right? So wherever you see yourself in this. Relatable and valid. And wherever you see yourself. Let me back that up. In John's retelling. Every single one of them relatable. Every single one of them valid. Right? So wherever you see yourself in this story today, I find every one of these incredibly... I wasn't there. You're, you're not there. You shouldn't see yourself in the story. You are not an eyewitness of the resurrection. These things John says in that same chapter, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. You're not in the story. This is a story recorded for you by those who were there. You're not in this text. Credible. We're going to be in John 20 if you have your Bible. If not, it's going to be up here. Um, here is the first one. We're going to start in John 20, verses 1 through 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is autobiographical by John. Um, it's real cute. Um, and said, they've taken the Lord. Never heard a male preacher say, yeah, that's so cute. Down with the patriarchy, man. Yeah, it's cause of all kinds of evil in the world and stuff. Uh -huh. Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter. <laughs> John. <laughs> I'm such a guy. I love John. I mean, um, John always gave the most glowing account of his own self. Right? 
And he reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, if you missed it. I mean, he was just making sure you know the details. Just stop asking him about it, you guys, okay? Also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I think the first reaction that we see here in this story is that death won. Death won. I don't know if you've noticed this, that death has a tendency to seem to win. Um, perfect, valid reaction to think that Jesus was dead um, because Jesus because he was was dead. Yeah. So I think this is fair. I think this is a fair assessment. Um, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, but the idea of a resurrection literally made no sense. Right? There's no precedence for this. There's no way to understand this out of context. Even though Jesus told them, told them all, I'm going to rise again. They had no idea what that really meant. So the disciples here weren't in anticipation. They were in mourning. I don't judge this reaction in the slightest because very, very dead things coming back to life is hard to believe. Dead things coming back to life. What, what are you talking about? And now you can see she's starting to allegorize this historically accurate account of the bodily resurrection of Christ. You can see that she's up to no good in how she's handling the text. And I can't think of what is deader than a three-day-old dead body, right? Yeah, nothing deader than that. I believe that. Believing in resurrection is super audacious. Yeah, super audacious, man. Are you audacious enough to believe in resurrection? Okay, uh, resurrection for whom exactly? Um, we're just we're not accustomed to empty tombs. It's not our normal experience. Um, uh, we are accustomed to full tombs. Yes, we back this up. Um, we're just, we're not accustomed to empty tombs. It's not our normal experience. Um, Jesus just did a whole new thing here. Like he reversed death. It's hard to understand. We, um, the natural order of things is decay and atrophy and endings. Um, that's easy to believe. We see it every day, right? Um, this is something new. So I'm thinking about us today here at church. Um, for anybody here who is, uh, more in mourning than anticipation today. Um, if something really important to you feels like it is dying. No, no. <clears throat> so what's the point of having a historically true account of an empty tomb if you're going to allegorize it and talk about, well, is, does anyone here have anything in their life that you feel is dying. That's not what the that's not what the resurrection's about. It's about the fact that Christ conquered the grave. Number one. Number two is you can talk about the fact that his sacrifice was accepted by God. This is most certainly true. It vindicates him and his claims to deity. Most certainly true. But also because he lives, we also will live. In other words, I you know, I don't really care about the thing you feel in your life that may be dying right now because Jesus has made no promises to resurrect whatever that thing in your life is dying. Instead, he's promised that on the last day, he's going to raise you, not, not that thing, you, actually raise you from the grave. Or maybe it's already dead. I don't know what that might be. Maybe it's your hope. Um... Maybe, is your hope dead? Maybe it's your health. It could be your marriage or some other really important relationship. Uh, maybe it's an addiction or just some. Like, well, wouldn't you want your addictions to be dead? 
Who who wants a living addiction? You know, I'm just saying. Stubborn sin pattern that refuses to to die. Uh, maybe it's your joy. Maybe it's your faith. Um, what we learn here is that Jesus insists that nothing is too dead for resurrection. No, no, that that is just utter and complete nonsense and gobbledygook. That is not at all <laughs> what the resurrection is about. Let me back that up, hear it again. What we learn here is that Jesus insists that nothing is too dead for resurrection. Mm-hmm. Notice, not no one, but nothing. Uh-huh, yeah. Ever. Ever. I mean, it can literally have the stink of death on it. It could be rigor mortis. Not the real stink of death, you know, like, you know. Your dead dreams, they they don't literally smell like death. But, I mean, you know, it's just the allegorical, symbolic stink of death on, on your dead dreams, you know. But don't worry. There's nothing too dead that Jesus can't raise it up. So your dead dreams are, oh, man, they have hope now, apparently. Burial cloths wrapped. And even then, that stone can still be rolled away. Um, obviously, some things die, right? Some things die. How, how about every human being dies? In a hundred years, we will all be dead. There we go. See, finally, she's kind of getting to the real point here. Good morning. Okay. <laughs> but I think what Jesus reminds us here is that he is life. And in him, life can always be found. Always. What do you mean by that? Because you were talking about dead dreams. So I wonder if that's where you are this morning. Would you consider looking for life among the dying or even among something that's already dead? Um, would you be what? Look for life among something that's already dead. There, There's your application right there. And that application makes no sense. And this is not what God would have you do or what Jesus wants you to do because he rose bodily from the grave. Um, would you be willing to see it even if it feels too late? Um, can we rec- Does it feel too late? Would you be willing to see if there's life there even if it just seems too late? This is nonsense. Recognize the signs of life, even when we're grieving, because they can coexist. Those can exist at the same time. Jesus is strangely present in tombs. We sh- what? The, 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 uh, the, the quotes here are just jaw-droppingly nonsensical. Listen again. Those can exist at the same time. Jesus is strangely present in tombs. We should expect to find him there. This is just miserable. Jesus is strangely present in tombs. We should expect to find him there. Let's all head out to the cemetery, folks. See if Jesus is hanging out there right now. So that's one thing. Death won. Death got him. The possible reaction. To resurrection. Here's the next one that I see starting in verse 11. Sorry, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Um, Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Um, Another possible reaction to resurrection. I thought Jesus was the gardener. Okay. I'm just, I didn't make it up. I'm just reporting. That, That was Mary's reaction. It's not one of our possible reactions. Again, I'm not in the story. You're not in the story. What Jen Hatmaker is doing to this biblical account is making it absurd. All right, we're going to pause this train wreck of an Easter sermon and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, more from Jen Hatmaker. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. We got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. 
Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith uh, could cause you to think that you weren't there when Christ was raised from the grave, so your reaction to it is irrelevant. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at 24 95 a month from there master gunner at 49.95 a month and then quartermaster 99.95 a month joining our crew is a great way to support us if you'd like to make a one-time contribution click on the donate button if you'd like to become a patron via patreon click on the become a patron button and if you'd like to support us the traditional analog way you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right here is the balance of uh, contestant number two's entry in this year's worst easter sermon of the year contest jen hatmaker and her sermon titled wounded and resurrected here we go. All four gospel writers mention Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And in this story, she is so distraught and so convinced that Jesus had just been stolen. She does not recognize him, even though he is talking to her like with his normal voice and looking at her with his regular face. Right, which you would think would be identifiers. And then, I mean, to make it even weirder, like she then suggests to him that perhaps he has stolen himself. Right? It's just a weird day for everyone. I um, deeply relate to this. Uh, the truth is that grief and loss or shock. How, how exactly do you relate to this? You weren't there can render us blind to jesus okay here we go again historically true account she says but none of these applications have actually require a physically empty tomb with a bodily resurrection and we end up mistaking him for a bit player in the story Jesus, 
He's like nowhere in this mess. Like I can't, I don't, that's just the gardener. I don't know. You know, Jesus can be incredibly present in our pain, in our chaos, just standing there like with his normal face and his regular voice. And we are capable of not even seeing him primarily because we're usually not looking for him there. So like I, I hesitated to share this story because I'm always really careful and reluctant to, um, to put any of my sort of pain next to the suffering of all of our like LGBTQ friends and brothers and sisters, because they're just not in the same category, right? Like that, that sort of suffering, um, so notice here, she is not calling same-sex sin, sin, and just overtly said that, that, um, that we have impenitent LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's, it's its own space, and I never, ever want to um, feel like I am pulling from that story at all. I, just, I, I tell you the story simply to show you an example of when I couldn't see Jesus and yet he was there. Um, so a lot of you know this, some of you don't probably, but a little bit over two years ago, um, uh, you know, Brandon and I ended up making just a pretty, well, it turns out to be public, um, uh, statement. And we were just, so we're super clear in our convictions where we just said unequivocally, you know, we fully affirm our, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, like that's the end of it. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So not only is she refusing to obey the commands that women are not to be an authority over a man and to preach and teach men in public, she's denying what scripture says regarding sexual immorality. I was certainly, I mean, I'm not dumb, right? I'm not new here. I, I, I knew that there was going to be some some real fallout to that. I mean, we we counted that cost and we knew we were going to pay it. That was that was not a surprise. I was unprepared for how terrible it was. Um, I was unprepared for how sweeping and how painful and how loud and it all felt. And um, it was I was just we were just shook. Um, it felt like everything I had ever put my hand to was dead or dying. All, everybody who loves us, serves with us, works with us, they're all suffering too. Church is suffering. I just, I felt like I couldn't. So her television show felt like it was dying. Yeah, well, don't worry. Jesus likes hanging out and with dead things. Yeah. Uh, there was never going to be a way out of it. Like, there was just, everything was dying all around me. So we had cleared our um, calendars entirely. Um, because otherwise, what would have happened was, which we knew, was 50 events would fire us, you know, from coming and teaching at their thing. And so we knew that. I had one event left on my calendar. One. I tried to get them to let me go, and they would not do it. One event. So all this went down to the end of October. This was in early January. And my event was um, to speak first at chapel and then in the evening at two women's events at Oklahoma Christian University. Okay. All right. Fun fact. Um, Oklahoma Christian University is a church of Christ college. And I don't know what you know about denominations. If that is just meaningless to you, um, I would say, I think probably fairly, that Church of Christ is on the, it's like the right twig of the right branch of the right limb of the tree. Okay? Does that... You're tracking? Um, That's it. I had one event. That was it on my calendar. I mean, obviously, that was probably just the gardener, right? Just the gardener. So, So your event was the gardener. You thought it was a gardener, but it turned out, the event turned out to be Jesus. You don't need a historically accurate account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus for what you're doing to the account of the resurrection. Um, president John DeSigner, the president of that university, fielded, I cannot even know, I don't even know how many calls and emails insisting he revoke my invitation. 
under threat, under bullying. And he just kindly refused every single one. Even mine. I wrote him and said, look, I live in the real world. I will not have my feelings hurt if you want to unravel this thing and just let it go. And he said, no, thank you. Just the gardener, I'm sure, right? Just a gardener there. Yeah, he, yeah, he's really Jesus, but he looks like the gardener, yeah. I got there, super rattled, super terrified. Um, and thinking, you know what, the smart thing for them to do is just let this kind of be quiet. <laughs> like, okay, they're going to pull it off, I guess. They're just, let's let this just kind of go gently into the atmosphere. Instead, when I pull up to the university on the busiest stretch of road in front of this school is the most enormous banner with my name and my face <laughs> welcoming me. I want to tell you something. <laughs> when I saw that, I cried for five minutes. Right? Just a gardener. So John and his entire staff treated me with the greatest care that I've probably ever been treated with in my entire life, that entire day. I, um, I felt like I was at therapy and church camp and my mom's house, like all day long. He and his wife held my hands. They prayed over me. They prayed with me. Just the gardener, I guess. Um, then that night... Every single Oklahoma, please consider geography in this, will you? Every single Oklahoma woman who had months ago, months, bought a ticket for not one, but two events in their huge auditorium that night. Every one of them came. The audience was packed both times, and I honestly thought no one was going to come. I was so scared. And then I kind of come up on stage and I am super wobbly and it is clear. And they start shouting things at me from their seats. One of them says, keep going. One of them says, we're still here. I'm just gardeners, I guess. That whole entire day was so nurturing to my wobbly, broken heart. And I want to tell you something. In that room, on that Church of Christ campus, was... When I had a sense for the very first time since the year before that there was still work for me to do and I was going to be healed enough to do it. The first time I knew it, for sure. Uh, Look, John and his daughter, Abby, we correspond to this day. This president of a Church of Christ University texts me to tell me which of my podcasts he likes. (laughs) And... How he and his wife, Darla, just read Seven, which is a book I wrote. In fact, he texted me and said, Darla says I can't choose Jiffy peanut butter as one of my food items because it's not local and has too many unpronounceable ingredients. (laughs) Tell you right now that if John DeStigner asked me today to convert to Church of Christ, I would sign on the dotted line. (laughs) Am I supposed to believe all that was just the gardener? What you're doing to the resurrection account is reprehensible. It is not an allegory about the suffering you went through. And Jen, the reason why you were made to suffer is because there are still Christians on planet Earth and in America who believe what God's word says regarding defining what is immoral And what is moral? What is holy and what is unholy? And you and your husband's feelings and views contradict the clear teachings of the word of God. Am I supposed to not believe that was Jesus chasing me down? Why should you believe that? Were you called to repent and called to believe the truth? I don't see any evidence that you've repented of your sinful doctrine and views. Coming after me. What if all the times that we say, oh, that was just... What if that's really Jesus present in our pain? What if it is? What if? This, is, this isn't even theology. This is, 
group therapy. What if? What if? What about when we say, well, that was just a coincidence, right? Or like, that's just how the calendar worked out. Or that's just something that happened. Or that was just luck. This is the reading of omens now. The clear word of God tells you that you are holding a false view and that you are affirming people in their sin. I just want to remind everybody, this is an Easter sermon. That was just random. What if that is Jesus? What if he is very present in our moments of great care and healing? What if he sends people to bind up our wounds? What if he ministers to us through belonging? I'm just, I mean, what if after all this, he is paying attention and with us like he said he was? I suspect that Jesus is now literally in every single moment where there is life. Especially in the midst of death. Especially signs of life among the dying And now she's defining death differently than scripture. I believe in the power of the resurrection to meet us everywhere now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've redefined the power of resurrection. And so now it's therapeutic power to make you feel like you're being healed when you've been confronted with your false doctrine and your false views and your false practices. Jesus only looks like a gardener sometimes because we didn't expect him there, right? We just, we weren't looking for him in that place. Or maybe it's just that the chaos was too loud or the pain was too acute. But then he says our name, right? Mary. Mary. Uh, Yeah, no, that's not what's happening here. Jim, right? Jackie. Val. And we know that voice cuts right through the fog. Absolutely right through the fog. Jesus is right here. He's with us. He's engineering life and healing and resurrection. He's calling our names. No, he is not. And what does it mean that he's engineering life? Jesus is the gardener. Here's the third one that I see, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen And yet have believed. I think the third potential reaction here. There better be some scars. First of all, let me say this about Thomas. Thomas was no less trusting than the rest of them, you guys. I mean, when Mary told Peter and John, they didn't believe her at her word. Right? They ran to the tomb to see for themselves. The rest of them were hiding in a locked room. So let's not give them too much credit. Okay, Thomas kind of gets a bad rap here. The truth is nobody really believed that Jesus was alive until they saw it for themselves. And frankly, Mary saw him for herself and thought he was there to weed eat, right? So so for me, 
it isn't Thomas's doubt that stands out here. Like a careful reading of the story, he's just in line with everybody else. It's not his doubt. It's his request. It's what he wants to see. Because apparently, it wasn't Jesus's face he wanted to see. Like it wasn't his voice he wanted to hear. Although presumably, those would be an easy way to identify Jesus, right? It's his wounds he wanted to touch. Thomas needed to see Jesus's scars and his marks. It seems like he wanted confirmation, not just of his rising, but of his suffering. I cannot tell you how much I have thought about that this week. I have just sat at my desk and thought about this and thought about it and thought about it. This request of Thomas is what did it mean? What did it communicate? How did Jesus receive this? What was he getting at? It's, I actually now find it really bizarre that Thomas is the only recorded person who asked Jesus about his traumatic death, right? It just kind of seemed like unless, unless the guy in front of him had scars from the week before, then it couldn't have been Thomas as Jesus, right? He's Jesus suffered. He saw it. So here we see this interesting moment where Thomas is unwilling to skip straight to the resurrection without acknowledging Jesus' death. The more I thought about it, I thought, you know what this says? This demonstrates to me great love and friendship, not doubt. Think of it like this. Imagine that you have suffered in... Yeah, the the issue here is that the text itself makes it clear what we're dealing with is unbelief. That's exactly what happens when Jesus appears to him. Gospel of John chapter 20, uh, the the account when Jesus appears to, to Thomas says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. And the way the Greek works out, do not be disbelieving, but be believing. You see, Jesus says to him, Do not be disbelieving. So what Jen Hatmaker said contradicts Jesus. Jesus said to Thomas, Stop disbelieving. This is about complete doubt, about complete unbelief on the part of Thomas. And so Thomas, hearing the word of his Savior, seeing the wounds, says to Jesus, You are my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he goes from being disbelieving to being believing. So what Jen Hatmaker is saying here, again, complete liberal gobbledygook. The more I thought about it, I thought, you know what this says? This demonstrates to me great love and friendship, not doubt. Think of it like this. Imagine that you have suffered in some unthinkable way. Maybe it's your body, but maybe it's your marriage or your life, your family, your child. I don't know what. But you have had a traumatic loss. You have suffered. And then whatever, however it happened, you experienced miraculous healing. Right? That thing kind of came back to life. And no one ever mentioned your pain to you? Wouldn't that be strange? No one ever asked you what it was like to go through it? No one ever acknowledged your scars or your losses? No one ever said, you know what? Yeah, the resurrection accounts are not autobiography regarding me or you. Your suffering was real. Like, I saw it, and I saw the cost, and I suffered with you. So I feel like here Thomas is seeing the entire Jesus, not just the risen one. And I bet Jesus felt loved by this. I would. You bet he did. Yeah, he he sure did feel that, yeah. Text doesn't talk about what Jesus felt here. You're now adding to the biblical account. You know, when Jesus says here at the end, blessed are 
you know, you saw and believed, blessed are people who don't see and believe. I don't think that's a jab at Thomas. I actually think that's a message to us. I think that's a message to all future believers who are never going to lay eyes on Jesus yet be asked to believe. Here's my final thought. Had Jesus shown up shiny and new, like unscarred, unmarked, he would have chosen to leave his humanity forever behind. And we would have a different savior. Um, What did Jesus save us from, Jen? I haven't heard you communicate that yet. So you acknowledge that Jesus is our savior. What did he save us from? Um, We would only be left with divinity, and Jesus would only be left with a very distant memory of what it was like to be a human on earth one time, 33 years out of the scope of existence. I suspect that Jesus carries those marks to this day. And I think we'll see them again too. And I love that. I love this about Jesus because only people who believe that Jesus's wounds were real, like Thomas, can ever imagine trusting him with our own. I think the cross sounds profound. And my question for you again, Jen, is why do we need a historically accurate account of Jesus's actual bodily resurrection to apply to your allegorizing and spiritualizing of his resurrection, which none of the things you've said are actual valid implications of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Can ever imagine trusting him with our own. I think the cross is where Jesus placed his story of woundedness right next to ours. I think, she said, I think the cross is where Jesus put his own story of woundedness right next to ours. Yes, we're all, this is just awful. And I love it because he didn't leave his suffering behind, right? Not just some weird anomaly of his human season, but he carries the scars and is somehow, as Richard Rohr puts it. (laughs) You're going to quote the Roman Catholic mystic Richard Rohr. Wow. She is totally emergent. Both wounded and resurrected at the same time. Listen, church, take great heart in that. Great heart, because you know as well as I do, we also carry permanent scars on our bodies sometimes, on our souls, on our minds. Evidence of our suffering is real, and yet... The reason why we suffer is because of our sinful rebellion against God. These are the consequences of our sin. And it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. We live. We live. Resurrection is possible still. Possible. Resurrection is possible. Notice she's not talking about the fact that in in Christ we have a real promise that when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, that we will bodily be raised from the grave and live forever, new heavens, new earth with him face to face. You know, God's dwelling place will be with his own people and he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is what Revelation says. Yeah, no, we just got some weird allegor- allegorical, spiritual, weird kind of sappy, estrogen-filled uh, applications of the resurrection without any call to repent, without any concept of, well, Jesus is Savior. What did he save us from? The wrath of God. The wrath of God because of our sin. How do you define sin? Take a look at the commandments. There's commandments against lying, murder, idolatry, adultery, blasphemy, dishonoring of your family, coveting. Oh, and there's a whole bunch of commandments related to sexual immorality, including adultery and homosexual activities and lusts. Yeah, 
no, no concept of that there and calling people to repent of those sins, be forgiven in Christ so that they might live rather than die. We are the people of the empty tomb, somehow also wounded and resurrected. We can trust the risen Jesus because sincerely by his wounds we're healed. Pray. He healed from what? By his wounds healed from what? Wow. So there you have it. That is contestant number two, uh, Jen Hatmaker of Austin New Church in Austin, Texas. And you can see why she uh, <clears throat> made the cut for this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>